Up to the top all by himself. Peterson is hit as he tries to throw the ball as loose. It's fumbled. Cobber players running onto the field, so there's flags, but the Cobber player, he scoops it. He's going to run down and try to score, but they ran out of extra players that ran out onto the field, so that is going to bring us back. So the question will be, is it still Cobber's ball or not? Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of a Monday, October 7th. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And that is how the, the finish of the week ended. Uh, actually, it's not even how it ended, but that's how it turned. Uh, Bethel against Concordia, one of the top five finishes, I would have to say, in the D3Football.com era, in which Concordia had the game won. They had the loose ball. They had it uh, picked up. But uh, too many Concordia Moorhead players were uh, had, had already run onto the field. Uh, penalty flag was thrown. Bethel got the ball back, and the rest is crazy. Absolutely, Pat. It's something that we hadn't seen. Of course, it's nothing that we've seen before, but I mean, a, a moment. We haven't seen a moment of this magnitude, I think, since the, the Trinity Millsaps laterals play probably in 2007, um, where it, you know you knew as soon as you saw it that, that you had never seen nothing like this before. You had to talk about it with somebody. You had to share the link the video, you had to show it, watch it again. Did it really happen that way? And, uh, you know, to explain it simply for the, for anybody out there that that's for whatever reason, uh, listening to the podcast, but hasn't watched this video already. Um, Bethel started a drive at the end of the game, trailing Concordia Moorhead 14, seven, they started at their own 29 yard line. They convert a fourth and 12, uh, during that drive, they get down, they had about three shots at the final play. And, um, for, for whatever reason, they, they, they come down to their, their last play, and uh, the, it's, a, it's a sack. The ball pops loose, rolls around on the ground, and the, uh, the Paul Strike was the, was the end who uh, made the hit for the Cobbers. It picks it up, takes it back for a touchdown, except as the defensive end is picking the, the sack up and, and, and getting ready to take it back, uh, for what would be the game ceiling touchdown, the Concordia Moorhead players come off the sideline, storm the field, and if you watch the video, it's more than one player. Um, and in and, and some accounts of it, if you read different newspaper accounts, says at least one coach co- came on the field uh, to the point where uh, this is all while the ball is live. So it's it's to the point where uh, the officials felt like they couldn't ignore it, and they they threw the flag. So instead of this uh, game ceiling touchdown, Bethel gets another shot at the final play, untimed down. From the nine-yard line, they throw a nine-yard touchdown pass. At that point, it's 14-13. Bethel could just kick it, go to overtime. But in uh, Bethel, you know, we're not even talking about their their kicking issues here or that they used to have years ago. They they knew they were going for two. They go for two. They have a great two-point play called, and uh, they get it. They win the game. Everybody storms the field. It was homecoming at Bethel, so you had maybe the biggest crowd of the, the season there. And uh, it really a, a amazing scene for Bethel and probably the worst way you could you could think to lose a game for Concordia Moorhead. So many different uh, directions to go with this. I'm going to start with the uh, whether players and coaches were on the field. There's video. Uh, you guys can watch it. There's archive video if you want to watch it. The link is here on the podcast page here on the blog. Uh, and you want to start at the two hour, 24 minute mark to get the last uh, few plays. Um, if you go to the game story that we have on our page, there's a d3photography.com photo uh, that has uh, I see three players on the field just as the ball is uh, just as the ball is being picked up, just as the fumble is being controlled, and those are just the ones in the frame. Uh, 
I, I concur with Keith. There's a coach who's on the field. I, I'm not going to say whether, you know, I don't know for sure whether he's on the field celebrating or trying to keep players from going onto the field. But that's a lost cause. Uh, there were there were multiple people on the field, uh, probably in the order of a half dozen before the ball is even picked up. Um, you know, my uh, I guess my thought there is I, I assume probably that uh, Concordia players thought that the uh, – thought that it was going to be an incomplete pass and that would be the end of the game that that's the theory the the prevailing i guess logic around why would a player or any player storm the field at that moment you know and it, it's hard to, to to sit back and judge because a, as a player on that sideline you know pat we've been joking a little bit on twitter about the the, the coaches who are the get back coach and there's a coach on the sideline you know, one of the position coaches is assigned to tell the players to stay behind. There's a, a four-yard barrier, and you're always supposed to stay behind uh, this four-yard line that's painted on the sideline. The only people supposed to be in the uh, box between four yards on the sideline are usually coaches or players that are going in and out of the game. Everybody else is supposed to be at least four yards back off the sideline. Uh, but, you know, during the excitement of a, of a game and, and it's one you're about to win, of course you creep up to the end of the box. The box is also cut off at the 25-yard line. So players are, are, you know, you're not supposed to be um, creeping onto the field, but it's human nature. And, and when you see, you know, the, the play that seals the game and, uh, you know, you may have th thought it was an incomplete pass, of course you're going to be excited. You know, the question is, uh, do you know in that moment you have to stay on the sideline and, and be excited on the sideline or because you thought it was the last play of the game, if you thought it was an incomplete pass and you thought the game was over, can you storm the field at that point? And, uh, you know, I guess prevailing logic is probably that they had to have thought it was an incomplete pass. And uh, I think, Pat, it's the type of thing where, you, you know, if, it, if, it, if, it, if they barely are on the field and it doesn't affect anything, you know, you let it go. But because the ball was live uh, and the play hadn't been blown dead yet, and, and there are multiple people on the field and actually in the way, you know, you have a situation where it's almost like a, the, you know, Cal Stanford band thing where, where people are on the field while, while, while a, um, a play is happening. And, uh, you know, the officials in hindsight, they have to call it, you know, in the moment for me, I was watching it um, on, on a phone and I saw it and I thought because the possession had changed that Concordia Moorhead basically recovers it and that, and, and you can't have a, you can't run another play because uh, you, you, Bethel doesn't have the ball. But the, the rule is, you know, the, that, that um, a, because it, it's a live ball, people can't be on the field, but also, you know, the, the, it's a, if the turnover hasn't occurred yet, then it's a, then it's a defensive penalty and that Bethel gets to, to play another down. Yeah, anybody who's, uh, of course, watched an NFL game oh, in the last 15 years or so knows that the uh, game or the half can't end on a defensive penalty, and that's what this was because uh, Concordia had not recovered the ball yet. Um, you talk about players being in the vicinity of the ball. The the photo that we have on the site has a, a player within about, I would say, you know, just judging from the size of the players, within two yards of the football as it's being recovered. Um, you know, so the, so that's clearly... Um, you know, what's going on there. Um, you know, and, and Concordia is, at this point, uh, was was this close, you know, to being undefeated and uh, having knocked off a top 10 team uh, on the road on their homecoming. Yeah, so, I wouldn't be surprised if they would, would have moved into the rankings had this play not occurred. I think they would have. Yeah, I, I think they would have. They almost, um, I mean, they almost did anyway. Nobody, basically nobody got upset on Saturday uh, in the D3football.com top 25 uh, not you, not so much in the coaches poll, but in our poll, nobody got upset. So there was really very uh, 
very little chance for anybody to move in. And Concordia Moorhead moved up even by losing. Yeah, they picked up 10 votes in the poll, which uh, and I know, you know at least one of those was, was uh, attributed to me. But I, I felt like sometimes when you, when you have games like this where a team loses basically on a, in, on a play that could have gone either way and a game that could have gone either way, it, it brings the distance between them. You know, I feel like I have to, to, to keep them tighter together to, to close it down a little bit. And, uh, you know, if I have if I'm ranking all the way down to 50 and I have Concordia Moorhead in the 30s and Bethel in the top 10, you know, I, I have to close that distance down. You still give Bethel credit for being the team that won. But, you know, if, if those two teams play 10 times, is it five and five? You know, do you, I mean, how? I find it hard to to bump Bethel up after a victory like that, which is almost, in some ways, it's like a, it's a victory on a technicality, and uh, I find it hard to, to penalize Concordia Moorhead. But uh, but at the same time, you know they they didn't win the game, and and this is something that uh, Terry Horan, uh, the Cobbers coach, alluded to in some of the post game comments. He said, you know, you, you still got to play the game. Indeed, and so. Uh, uh, Concordia Moorhead is penalized half the distance to the goal line. Uh, Bethel gets one shot from the nine, one untimed down. Uh, they score the touchdown, and then they come out for the two-point conversion. And here is uh, Bethel quarterback Eric Peterson talking about that uh, two-point conversion play. Tommy, it's obviously pretty nerve-wracking to throw that one out there. I mean, he's by himself has to win a game, and it's just throw it out there. You know Mitch is going to catch it, and you know you're going to get time because – they have to get so much attention to our receivers coming across and all by himself, and it was the craziest feeling winning that one. So. And, Keith, I know you were a fan of this play call. We talked about play calls and two-point conversions uh, because we had three big ones uh, the previous week, but I know you liked how this one uh, – obviously it turned out well. Yeah, it was, a, it was a good play call and a great play call for, for this part of the field. And a lot of the two-point plays are plays uh, – we talked about this last week where – you know, you hang on to that play all season and you, you only want to use it in a special situation. You don't want to, you know, put it on film for somebody to see. This, uh, the Royals call a play. They threw the nine-yard touchdown pass to Hillbrands. And then the, this play is, was for, for Mitch Halstrom, the receiver. The, so they, they line up receivers on what I'll call the near side and they motion uh, Halstrom across the, the back of the formation. So that, that right there tells a quarterback, you know, whether or not the defense is in man or zone. And, be, and because... Uh, you know, in in the goal line, everything is so compressed. You know, it's zone sometimes is effective because uh, you know the the you have to hit that play right away, and because in 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 the defense can come off their man real quickly and, and get to the ball quickly. But but uh, if you have a man uh, route call down there, and what Bethel did was was they basically it was almost like a pick play. Uh, the once once uh, the the inside receiver comes off the line, Halstrom basically just. It runs right behind him, and that, that picks off ju- just delays the Concordia Moorhead defense enough to where they're, they're not going to be able to get him. And all, uh, all the quarterback has to do is just lay it out there, almost like a swing pass to Halstrom, and he walked into the end zone untouched and kept on going into the, the uh, back of the end zone, the fans uh, behind the end zone there for Bethel. Again, this all happened with no time on the clock, both the touchdown and the two-point conversion. And so the, the place just erupted. And uh, again, we you know, I like the two-point play, but the, uh, you know, the, the the onus is also on Concordia Moorhead. They, they um, you know, you stop the touchdown pass or you stop the two-point play, and most of this is, is moot. And, and, Pat, Bethel, you remember, was one of the teams that was involved in one of these two-point plays last week. You know, Milliken uh, and, and uh, Platteville also tried 
to uh, to win the game on two point conversions. And Augsburg against Bethel uh, scored with a minute forty six left and uh, had an incomplete pass on a two point conversion play. And uh, so so th- those things aren't given. And uh, Concordia Morehead had a chance to stop it, and they didn't. Yeah, in fact, uh, as you say, they really had two chances. Two chances to deny us of uh, one of the top plays of the last uh, 13 years or so, one of the top plays to end a game. You were trying to compile a list of you know, maybe the top 10 game-ending plays of the uh, D3Football.com era. Uh, you've already mentioned Trinity Laterals. Um, I, don't, I, I, I can't imagine the, uh, the play that would be required to knock that off the top list. Um, then I would say uh, Rowan Bridgewater National Semifinals 2001 uh, yep. because of you know everything that went on there, including the magnitude of the game, it being the National Semifinals, has to be number two. And, and I think, to be honest with you, um, there's a pretty good argument for this being uh, number three. Yeah, Pat, you, you, know, you mentioned some other great finishes. The, the miracle in the mud between Central and Linfield is on the list as well. But you're right about the, the Rowan Bridgewater one because of the magnitude of it, because of the way... You know, we found out about everything that happened in that game. The, the, the clock stopped at one second while the game was in action uh, on the play before. And then Bridgewater basically got to, to play an untimed down, although there was one second on the clock and they threw a game-winning touchdown there. And, uh, you know, later in the week during that week, although Rowan was complaining from the moment it happened, you know, the video comes out later in the week. And, you know, at that point, Bridgewater's already, uh, you, know, you know, on their way to the Stag Bowl and, uh, and nothing changed. And, um, and and Casey Keeler was still going around on you know Comcast in the Philadelphia area and, and showing this video and sort of uh, letting everybody know how his team got robbed. So that was a, a huge moment, you know. And, and the Trinity one, the the video went viral. This one, you know, I don't know if if it went quite viral outside of the D three circle, but it was it was exci- It was something we'd never seen before, and it was exciting for all of us, you know, who saw it on Twitter and who saw the video of it. And you know, we we had a D three photographer folks at on site so they had great photos of it and it was it was kind of um uh, you know it was definitely an event it was something that 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 stopped us you know and, and on a saturday when you know you have other big stories emotional stories and you also have top 25 teams playing each other conference clashes you know of, of the nature of you know like wittenberg and wabash for for this you know it had to be a big deal to to, to be top billing on that on last saturday and I'll just say, you know, people have made note of all the crazy things I've been witness to this year. I could have gone to that game, but I, with all the other things that were going on on Saturday, and we are going to talk about all of those things, if not, uh, uh, if not those and more. You know, the the Salisbury St. John Fisher game, Wittenberg Wabash, Wesley Birmingham Southern, all in the early part of the afternoon as well. I just thought it made more sense to sit and uh, track the game from home, and then all of a sudden, uh, this game that was, you know. A 25-minute drive for me uh, turned into, you know, Sam Durley throwing for 736 yards or, or Whitewater losing with three seconds in the game, those kind of things. It, uh, that's, again, we say it a lot, but it's one of the great things about Division Three. Um, you know, I'm going to say, too, you know, we had obviously some some pretty sad news in Division Three football this past week. Um, but one of the things that I found really interesting and kind of heartening and, and in fact a little bit inspiring to me was how um you know how uh, the the whole uh first of all the whole Washington and Jefferson campus community and then the division 3 football community and to a little bit of a sense the a little bit more the college football community at large kind of rallied around W&J after uh Tim McNerney was uh uh was was murdered off campus uh early Thursday morning you know I guess I just said murdered uh I didn't 
I'm not involved in the legal proceedings. I know charges haven't necessarily been filed, uh, but I'm just going to go ahead and connect those dots and the law and order people could get me later. But, um, you know, just that the way that uh, everybody kind of rallied around this, including, a, you know, a campus that, you know, with a lot of kids who didn't know this guy, um, that just to watch them, um, you know, their, their outpouring of emotion on Twitter over the course of the past now four or five days, um, it's just been, to me, it's been inspiring and it's, uh, you know, made me want to do even more on this story than it, uh, than we would have done in the first place. It, it is a, a big thing, Pat, in the sense that, you know, nothing could ever prepare these guys f for what happened. And the, the rest of us who, who, you know, if we, if we played against Tim or we just knew of him from his name in a box score or because he'd been all conference a couple times or, or if we didn't know him at all, you know, you can still attempt to imagine what those guys are going through. And, and all you can do in, in that time is, is say to yourself, you know, we're, we're all on one team at this point. You know, you, you put football on the, on the back burner a little bit and it's, you know, had to be real hard for those guys to get geared up for a game on Saturday, you know, after not just their friend, but somebody who was a key part of the team uh, is taken away from them. And it's not under natural circumstances or an accident, but something that happened violently close to where they all still live. You know, they all, most of the players still live on campus. So now you, they, you know, you go by that spot, you, you know, you, you go to the same place that he was coming from. You, you know, you, you see his locker and in, in the locker room and, and those type of things. There's no, there's nothing that could ever prepare those guys for that. You know, I, I spent a little bit of time, a very little bit, uh, a time around Frostburg State last season when they uh, had lost a player who was very important to them in Derek Sheely. And, and, and uh, what happened to Derek was on the field. And, uh, and, you know, it was an accident. Um, you know, we, we could go back pretty much every season since this has happened, Pat, um, since we've started doing D3. I mean, um, you know, there, there's been misfortune that befalls a player or a coach or somebody um, on a team across the country. And, and we get to see how teams rally around it. And it's not it's no replacement for for having that person that that everybody loves still there, but it, it it's something you know and, and and you know you let you let you let people know or you let yourself know that that this person mattered by the way you respond to it and uh, I I was real impressed by the way not just W and J responded you know again you mentioned the campus and the players themselves because uh, because of Twitter. And Instagram and some of these different things, you know, we get a little window into what they were going through, which is not something that, that we would have had access to, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. But also you, you, there's opportunity for other people to, to step in and support and uh, and say, hey, you know, we're saying a prayer for you or we just we just wish you the best or anything we could do for you. Let us know. And, and it was also Thomas Moore, you know, on, on, at Saturday's game, uh, taking a moment out to to remember um, Tim because um, you know, it, it, that's the type of thing where it, it could really be any of us, any of our players, any of our campuses. And, and it, it really, really hit home, I think, for a lot of people. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, is it, actually, you know, you talk about this happening on a, unfortunately, on a fairly regular basis. You have 20,000 to 25,000 
kids playing Division three football in any given season. Um, you know, uh, also this past week, uh, um, Troy Pappas, who a, was a freshman on the football team at Bates College up in Maine, uh, died after he had uh, fallen in a stairwell six days earlier. And, uh, you know, these are just, unfortunately, you know, this uh, sports is, you know, the ultimate reality TV sometimes, but unfortunately real reality is far more tragic sometimes than uh, than what goes on on the, on the me- in the media. And, and it, this is the type of experience where it, it changes people, I think, and people really do grow from it. And I don't, I hope it doesn't diminish, you know, the, the, the sadness or the grief around what happened by saying that, you know, a small bit of good comes out of it. Um, you know, reading the, reading about Troy Pappas at Bates, who, as you mentioned, uh, had had an accident and uh, and died. You know, they said the the, the mood around campus is, is that there was a lot of tension now. You know that 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 things are just different. You take you take small moments more seriously because you know that that accident could happen to you. You know, for 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 Washington Jefferson, what happened to to, to Tim McNerney was was he was. Uh, he and another player were walking home, uh, you know, from from a, a night of of drinking and coming back to campus. And uh, and this is just according to the the reports um, in the news around Pittsburgh uh, and around Washington, PA. But um, you know, they were, they were accosted by robbed, I guess, by by approximately six men. And uh, you know, you know, the the one guy was able to to break free and escape and uh and and tim mcnerney wasn't and, and uh it's sad because it it, it you know I, he didn't do anything to deserve that you know and uh and the the, uh, the outpouring of support and the, and the you know the proof that that those guys really loved and cared about him is nice to see but it would be so much nicer to to not ever have to deal with something like that absolutely that is so true um if you want to know more about uh, Troy Pappas' story, you can read about it. Um, it's in the What We're Reading box on the front page of uh, d3football.com, so you can read a little bit more about him there. Um, and uh, you know, Our condolences to the, uh, the Pappas and McNerney families and everybody at uh, Bates College in Washington and Jefferson College for uh, what they've been through this past week and this past weekend. And to to go out on Saturday too and then try to play a game, I think you know there's one or two ways it could go. It was going to go for Washington and Jefferson, and uh, they're you know they're playing one of the traditional best. They are traditionally one of the best teams in in the pack, and then they're also playing um, Tom Thomas Moore, which was traditionally one of the best teams in the pack. And uh, you know Thomas Moore jumped all over them early, uh, scored the first 27 points. W and J. Uh, you know, almost made a game of it in the third quarter, uh, but uh, Thomas Moore ended up making it a, a 54-18 game. And, uh, you know, it, it's got to be really, really tough when, when one of your friends dies uh, in the middle of the week. And again, it doesn't, doesn't you know, die in an accident, but dies under violence, violent circumstances, uh, you know, something that really you figure could could happen to, to almost anybody it was almost you know random selection from, from you know the, at least the details that we know you know it, 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 it's got to be hard for those guys to process it and then go to practice and, and there's like i said two ways it could go you can channel that energy into football or you can 
you know, be so lost in emotion that you can't focus on football. And, you know, I, I don't want to infer from from the score that, you know, because I wasn't there and I didn't I didn't um, have conversations with the WNJ players in advance or, or afterward. But, you know, you, it, you have to imagine that it was tough for them to to put it together on, on Saturday and play their best game. But, you know, what was interesting by comparison is um, Bates had had one of the more surprising results in, in, in recent NESCAC history uh, after their loss. So uh, by beating Williams 33-6, and Williams is traditionally one of the best teams in the NESCAC. They're now 1-2 and two after losing to Trinity the week before. You know, that's Bates beating Williams is is something you know, we would n- never expect to happen. And uh, Bates scored the first 33 points in that game. Uh, really, Williams was was never competitive, and, and that is uh, that was a big surprise. You know, we don't get, we don't get a chance to talk much about the NESCAC, except, you know, when when Trinity and Amherst play or Williams and Amherst play because they're so, um, you know, I guess Middlebury gets on the radar a little bit, but they're so, they start later. They're never in the playoff picture. They're rarely in the top 25 picture. So they're kind of off in their own world. And that's by choice and by design. But uh, this, as an upset for Bates, is, is a pretty huge deal. And it's an interesting contrast, at least in my mind, that they were able to play probably their best game of the season after losing one of their own and, and W and J, you know, got blown out. And I, I don't think from what I could tell from W and J, there wasn't a lot of sadness around losing the game, you know, that they just were kind of proud to be able to go out there and play. You could see it in some of the pictures that were tweeted and some of the comments that were made after the game that, that those guys were just wanted to honor, uh, honor their friend by, by going out there and playing and at least, you know, giving it their best. WJ honored uh, Tim McNerney by uh, running its first offensive play with a missing man formation, lining up just ten players. And as uh, and as uh, Keith mentioned, uh, Thomas Moore won that game, fifty-four to eighteen. Uh, other games going on on Saturday. Uh, you know, we talked about um, you know a, a couple of games, which one of which involved or two of which involved two top twenty-five teams. Uh, another one of which involved a top twenty-five team and a team. Uh, kind of just on the outside of getting votes. And let's just start with the uh, Salisbury-St. John Fisher game, whereas, you know, of all the things that, for example, that where St. John Fisher has maybe, I don't know, maybe a little bit underachieved what they've done this year. Uh, you know, they've, they struggled with W&J. They struggled with University of Rochester, for example. Um, you know, this is a game where, uh, let's say for the first 53 minutes, uh, they looked uh, they looked really good. They had a rookie quarterback in there. Um and then the last seven minutes or so, things kind of just fell apart for him. Yeah, well, if you would have asked me, Pat, in, in advance how this game going to go, I, I would have probably have told you, you know, St. John Fisher coming in there 4-0 and, uh, and, and Salisbury uh, was 3-1 and with the one loss to Wesley. And, uh, but St. John Fisher, really, the quality of their wins hadn't quite been the, the, the quality of, of Salisbury. So I would have said Salisbury, you know, they may play a close game in the first half, but that option attack starts to wear them down over the course of the game. And, and Salisbury maybe wins going away. But it wasn't like that at all, Pat. St. John Fisher really controlled that game, uh, led it led at the half 10-7. Uh, and, and at one point in the in the third quarter is leading uh, 17-14. And then has a ha, runs a play, um, you know, in inside their own 10-yard line, fumble, Salisbury recovers the fumble um, two plays later. They're in the end zone, six-yard drive, touchdown. And then St. John Fisher, you know, getting a little little anxious, not just eager, but really anxious. Uh, sorry, copy editor no, humor. Nice. I like that. Well done. Uh, 
uh, and throws an interception. Paul Moore has a 32-yard interception return to give Salisbury a little cushion late in that game, and they end up winning 28-17. And what is surprising is that, you know, based on St. John Fisher's early results, they, uh, they, they Washington and Jefferson had them on the ropes the whole first half, but just didn't score a lot of points. Salisbury comes back to win. Salisbury had to go to overtime to beat Thomas Moore, and uh, and Rochester, you know, in in the Courage Bowl, they uh, they they had to hold off Rochester at the end of that game. They had they had a big win over Hartwick in in between those those three close wins, but um, this was maybe for. Th- you know, three quarters, maybe their best game of the season. You know, they end up not winning it because of what happened in the last six and a half, seven minutes. But uh, for St. John Fisher, in, in my mind, you know, to be able to stand toe to toe with Salisbury and, 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 you know, it, it impressed me more than any of their wins impressed me. I, I don't know if that makes sense to some people out there, but I'm always looking at issues of, of, of strength. And, uh, and basically, if a team is in the game within one score or has a chance to win, you know, late in the fourth quarter, halfway through the fourth, fourth quarter, it's almost like a, like a draw to me in my, in, in my voting mind. You know what I mean? And so I actually didn't have St. John Fisher as high as everybody else did in, in the polls. You know, they came into this game. The, uh, the Seagulls were seventh in the country. The Cardinals were, were ninth. And I, I had it more like Salisbury six and St. John Fisher high 20s. And, and I, I felt like, again, as I mentioned, w- with regard to Bethel and Concordia Moorhead, I had to close that gap down a little bit because they played uh, so closely together. And uh, for St. John Fisher, you know, maybe turnabout's fair play because, you know, they, they sort of got away with, with one against Washington Jefferson. You know, be, maybe being outplayed by the presidents, but, uh, but coming, back, coming back to win that game, they got away with one beating Thomas Moore in overtime. You know, any game that goes to overtime, they certainly could have lost on one play in regulation. And uh, this time they, they weren't able to get away with one. They let Salisbury get away. St. John Fisher has Alfred next, and they host Ithaca. Um, yeah, they finished the season with Buffalo State and Utica, and based on how those teams have played the last few weeks, who knows what those games would be like. Uh, I, I would say we'll talk more about that later. We're a half hour in, so I will say we will probably talk more about that later. Uh, let's talk about Wittenberg and Wabash. Um, you know, we talked about uh, in the triple take about how Wittenberg has played so well at home over the past few years and has struggled a little bit on the road. Um, you know, in this case, uh, Wittenberg is playing a quarterback who's seeing this uh, this rivalry, this competitive rivalry game for the first time. Um, you know, these two teams have been basically uh, playing for the NCAC title for the past uh, several years, kind of taking it back and forth from each other. Um, and, you know, the thing that Im- impressed me about this game is that uh, I, I love it when this happens. Wabash gets the ball back with about nine and a half minutes left to go and runs out the clock the last nine and a half minutes of the game. Yeah, it's sort of a, uh, you have to be a football connoisseur to love that, and, you know, because you, some people just want to see scoring, but it's uh, it's almost more demoralizing to, to just be like, all right, we've got plenty of time left. All we got to do is get the ball back and score once more, and then you can never get it back. That is mm-hmm. that is certainly a, a, a fairly, you know, de- demoralizing thing, I guess. Um, for Wittenberg, they actually fell behind in this game, 27-17, and uh, they're actually behind 20-3 to at the half in this one, and so they made it interesting uh, in the third in the third and fourth quarter. Um, and and the, these rivalry games, they, they 
they go that way a lot of times. You know, one team gets out to a big lead and then they kind of try to protect it and the other team comes fighting back. And especially when it's the home team, as Wittenberg was in this case, you know, they start to rally and all of a sudden things start to fall their way. And so it really was a big deal, Pat, as you mentioned, that they were Wabash was able to not let Wittenberg get the ball back one more time because, you know, once the momentum is riding with that home team in a big rivalry game, it, it can be awful tough to overcome that. The other thing I think that's interesting about uh, teams like Wabash and Wittenberg, and I think it's probably also true of, of Reds in a normal year, is when you play in a conference where you and, and one other team have dominated this conference for so many years, it's hard to get up for the the games, the, the you know, to, to play that level. You don't every week. If week in and week out, you kind of know as a team. You're gonna you're gonna beat the team that you're playing, and that's probably the case for Wabash and for Wittenberg. Although Wabash was upset by uh, by Allegheny earlier in the season, you know, very few North Coast Conference teams beat Wabash and Wittenberg over the past several years. Allegheny's done it. Worcester's had some nice years, but um, really, those those teams win almost week in and week out. And it's just it, you mentioned Pat, a quarterback playing in that rivalry game for the first time. You know, certainly a bunch of players probably on both sides in that game for the first time. It, the intensity doesn't reach that level necessarily every week, and so it, when you when you play that that game where you know if we win this game and we do what we're supposed to do the rest of the year, you know we'll we'll probably win the conference. And you know in in Wabash's case, with already having a North Coast loss, knowing they can't afford to to stumble at all anymore, that focus is there. I think all week through practice and uh, and right on through the game. And uh, now we got an interesting race in the North Coast. Tyler Holmes had 12 of his 20 carries on that final drive. Wabash uh, ran 17 plays on that drive. Uh, Reed Florence is the quarterback for Wittenberg, 10 of 19 passing for 92 yards, just 92 yards passing. Uh, and, uh, Wittenberg on the course of the afternoon was held at 254 yards, and they only had the ball uh, for 23 minutes. They were already uh, had a, a time of deficit possession before that final drive even started. But, uh, yeah, to talk about the uh, – the, the NCAC race, of course, you remember, I, I think uh, a lot of people know that the NCAC does not play a full round-robin schedule, so not everybody plays everybody. Uh, Ohio Wesleyan is undefeated. Allegheny is undefeated. Kenyon is undefeated. But of course, I don't think anybody really expects any of those teams to, to take the conference championship. Uh, Ohio Wesleyan has to play Wabash. It does not have to play Wittenberg. Uh, Kenyon gets away without having to play either of those two teams. Uh Allegheny has to play both Wabash and Wittenberg, but then again, they've already beaten Wabash. So uh, Allegheny or uh, Wabash probably hoping for some help from Wittenberg uh, to try to take Allegheny down. Allegheny is home to DePauw, home to Wittenberg, at Kenyon, home to Ohio Wesleyan, and at Hiram. And uh, even though Allegheny, uh, you know, got crushed by Carnegie Mellon, uh, struggled with Oberlin, got shut out at the University of Chicago, uh, this past weekend, it's not impossible to conceive of them running the table. Nope, and and, and those wins will will go a big way in deciding the race. Pat, they'll they'll you know they play Wittenberg, Kenyon, and Ohio Wesleyan uh, three weeks back to back, and so this is a chance. This is what teams do, Pat. You know, during the season, they they, they vision, they envision 
what could happen if everything goes the way we want it to go? And you lose one game, you say, we're going to go nine and one. You lose two games, we're going to go eight and two. You lose three games, you start figuring out how could we, if these other teams lose, how can we still win the conference? And, and in this case, in, in the North Coast, you know, uh, with Allegheny beating Wabash early in the season, it's not like it is a lot of seasons where whoever wins the Wabash-Wittenberg game is definitely going to the playoffs. Um, you know, that's still the big the big game in that conference. But right now, Allegheny has a chance. And uh you know, it's hard for us from afar to assume that Ohio Wesleyan maybe will hang in this race. But um, because it's not an even perfectly breaking round robin where everybody plays each other, it can be tough. It'll be tougher than than some other uh, conferences to sort out uh, if there's a three-way tie uh, at the end of this thing. I think I might have said that Ohio Wesleyan plays Wittenberg. Uh, Ohio Wesleyan plays Wabash uh, on October 27th. So. Uh, Wabash has uh, control of its own destiny, at least as it regards uh, matching up against Ohio Wesleyan. Um, and I this conference eventually is uh, fixing its schedule, I believe. They have been in kind of scheduling flux for more than a decade, and it, it's kind of hard for me to understand why they haven't been able to adjust faster to some of the changes, like Earlham leaving, DePauw coming in, uh, starting... You know, soon they are no longer going to be playing uh, a whole bunch of games against the University Athletic Association, um, and they may have a chance to, you know, fix their schedule up then. You know, they've been, you know, basically, uh, we're going to keep this tangent to about 90 seconds or less, but, you know, they've been protecting the bottom teams in their conference. You remember that uh, Oberlin was in danger of, of dropping football, and Kenyon dropped out uh, of the uh, of the NCAC for football for a season. You know, they've been kind of protecting those teams and, and helping them along, and it's at some point, you'd have to think it's going to come up and bite them. Well, to be honest, Pat, you mentioned it. It's a 10-team league now. They should be playing nine conference games. If, if you can't, you know, what's the point of having a conference if some of the teams can't play some of the other teams? It, that means it might work great for other sports, and you guys can all be a conference, you know, but I'm, I'm sure it's no different than when Wittenberg goes to Kenyon for swimming. You know, it's, a, it's an automatic... You know, you got to beat the best to, to be the best, so to speak. So um, for those of you that don't know, Kenyon is a swimming powerhouse. And uh, it, it's, you know, the thing that coaches love about being in a conference more than anything, you know, they love the opportunity for their kids to be recognized. But the thing they love the most is having that set schedule. Absolutely. Uh, and so. Uh, they played, you know, six conference games in 2011, six conference games in 2010. They played a non-conference game against a conference opponent, uh, which is something we rag on the uh, folks in the NEFC for doing. Uh, this was mandated by the conference uh, here in the NCAC, and it's just, it's just a mess. It would be nice if that were someday cleared up. Uh, and there was one other game between uh, ranked teams on Saturday in which, you know, it's kind of hard for me to get a feel of, of how this game actually went down, Keith. You know, uh, Wesley trailed early against Birmingham Southern and came back and won it. And in that sense, it's not all that different than a lot of other games this season for Wesley. And, and, and because Wesley plays the schedule that it plays, it's gotten some good tests uh, against Mary Harden Baylor at Louisiana College. And, and this game against Birmingham Southern was no different. Um, you know, Birmingham Southern put the first 10 points on the board. Wesley comes back to tie it and takes the lead right before halftime on a, on a touchdown pass from, uh, from Justin Sadler to Steve Kadosu, 16-10 uh, going in. Birmingham Southern then puts together this epic 16-play drive in the third quarter, 77 yards. Joseph Moultrie finishes it off and, and puts Birmingham Southern ahead, 17-16. Wesley comes back with an epic drive in the fourth quarter, 18 plays, uh, but they're not able to punch it in, so they take the lead on a field goal. And then I believe it was a turnover that, that – um, 
uh, set up the final drive, but it, and Wesley put together a ten play drive late in the fourth to to seal it. But basically, it was a it was a back and forth game with especially with these two drives. You know, the sixteen play drive and the eighteen play drive uh, eating up. Each of those drives actually taking eight minutes and 27 seconds. Uh, so eating up basically the entire third quarter, you know, half of the third quarter, half of the fourth quarter with these uh, uh, two long drives uh, by both teams. And, uh, you know, what stands out most from this game or what's most important, uh, the takeaway from it is the the effect on the Pool B um, proceedings. You know, we have this little bit of a Pool B round robin because Wesley plays Huntington. Both those teams are independent. Huntington already played Birmingham Southern. Uh, Birmingham Southern won that game by a touchdown, 45-38. And now these two teams, you know, Wesley and Birmingham Southern have played. So now Wesley's got, um, you know, Wesley's got a win. Birmingham Southern has a win. If uh, if Huntington wins that game, you know, it, it throws the whole pool B picture, I guess, not out of whack, but um, it, it's going to give us I guess a lot to work with when we start analyzing this this pool B thing, and you know you also have you know Carnegie Mellon or, or you know teams from the UAA still hanging in it. Uh, the the rest of the SAA is not um, not out of this thing yet. Although Huntington beat Millsaps on Saturday, so that's another um, win that will help us sort out pool B. You know the the other thing um, along the same lines is Pat, you put on the site or or you pointed out that these are on the site. Uh, the uh, the new strength of schedule numbers, and now that we're six weeks into the season, they start to mean something. No surprise that uh, Mary Harden Baylor is tops in that, and Wesley was number two. And even if you talk about not using the NCA numbers, but just using a a ranking scheme, for example, say our top twenty five poll, uh, Wesley's played five games this season, four of them against ranked opponents. Uh, they're number six. They have beaten number seven, Salisbury. They lost to second-ranked Mary Harden-Baylor, uh, beat current number 21, Louisiana College, and beat current number 16, Birmingham Southern. Uh, Wesley hosts a second-year program, Virginia Lynchburg. I'm not even sure if that uh, school has an affiliation athletically of any sort. Um, but, uh, Wesley had uh, not much problem with them last year. They go across the country to the Bay Area, at the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Area, that one. Uh, they play Menlo in two weeks. Come back home for Huntington on the 27th. Keith mentioned that's the only other game that really counts for them, too, in terms of uh, in terms of playoff consideration because it's the only game against a Division Three opponent, and it's an in-region game as well. And then they finish off with Apprentice School. Then they have a bye um, in which, you know, presumably if they're, uh, I was going to say nine and one, but of course they would only be eight and one. They only have nine games on the schedule this year. Then they'd be uh, practicing and hoping that they get a bid. And we've seen that happen with with a couple of teams, Pat. Uh, St. St. Thomas did it. Uh, I think it was last year. You know, they had their bid locked up. We've seen um, was it was it Endicott and Illinois College last year. I think both of those Illinois College did. Yeah. Yeah, they were the ones, you know, the Midwest uh, ends ends their season a week early. They they start in week one and, and go right through week 10 and don't have the bye everyone else does. Um, so, yeah, some teams practice and they, they don't know if they're in. You know, in fact, we probably thought they didn't have much of a chance to get in and they ended up getting into the field uh, last year. And so that can be an awkward situation. But, you know, the part of the joy of the playoffs is being able to play another week with, with your guys, your best friends. Get get another week better if you're a young player. So to, you know to be able to have an excuse to practice is a, is something those teams welcome. You know we we mentioned Illinois College too. We maybe should jump to that uh, that race right there in the Midwest. 
well, let's see if we can try to figure it out because there, here's another conference now that it's an 11-team conference. Uh, this is a group where not everybody plays everybody else. So uh, yeah, there's a uh, there's a very real possibility of a uh, of, of, of a tie involving teams who haven't played each other. Yeah, and and it was on Twitter earlier this evening. Yeah, I'm, I'm pulling that up. Uh, I, stall for me, will you? Well, I I almost did it, but I said I'm not signing, and I'll just um, point it out. Um, Pat's going to get it, but there there's a scenario where if St. Norbert wins the rest of their games, they guarantee themselves uh, at least a portion uh, of the Midwest Conference title. You know, the 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 big deal, the big thing that threw everything out of whack this weekend was. Illinois College was playing Lake Forest. Illinois College 5-0. and Lake Forest was kind of a surprising 4-1. and Lake Forest really hasn't been good since Casey Erlocker was there in like 0-3. Uh, and and they, they made the playoffs, but they've, they've you know, mostly fallen on hard times. And uh, so, you know, from afar, you just figure, yeah, the schedule broke right for Lake Forest, but Illinois College is going to blow them out. Well, it starts out to be a fine game for, for Illinois College, but then they lose their star quarterback, Michael Bates. And uh, even though he, he tried to come back in that game where he was well enough to, to come back in the game and play, uh, Illinois College, uh, excuse me, Lake Forest, uh, hung on to the ball in the fourth quarter, kind of like we described in, in describing a couple of these other games. And uh, he really never got a chance to rally them to victory. And so now this race that kind of I was, I'll be honest, I was assuming just the way Illinois College had been playing, the points they'd been putting up, that they were sort of unstoppable. Now you have them in the mix. You have Lake Forest, Monmouth, St. Norbert all consider themselves uh, in the mix for this race. And, and it's an interesting one because uh, those are the, you know, one of those teams is going to make the playoffs. For, for you St. Norbert fans out there, here's the uh, scenario. Uh, St. Norbert has to win out. Uh, Monmouth has to lose to either Cornell or Lake Forest. Uh, Monmouth has to beat Illinois College and then Lake Forest loses any other game then uh, St. Norbert wins outright and qualifies for the playoffs. Uh, easy as uh, easy as pie. So we'll see uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, also in the Midwest, you know, we uh, I don't know if we maybe learned a little bit about the Wyack race. Uh, I thought it was interesting to see just how well Platteville came back and, and Bryce Corrigan who you know, took the reins of the offense in the middle of the second quarter last week and didn't really get his uh, feet under him until the last couple drives of the game. Uh, really came out firing on all cylinders uh, and literally 22 of 23 uh, passing in the first half and that 23rd was a drop. Yeah, you just don't see that. You know, it, it, I mean, it's hard to do anything, you know, 22, 23 times in a row correctly and uh, let alone, you know, complete passes with, with guys rushing and uh I, the the biggest takeaway for me on Saturday from the WIAC was that there there is no fourth team that's going to challenge. You know, Stevens Point is not going to be part of the race. O Eau Claire had that tough opening schedule. You know, with playing St. Thomas and some other teams, um, they're not they're not going to be part of it either. Lacrosse was the one I was thinking might be um, might be pretty good. They got blown out by uh, by Platteville, and so you know Platteville and Oshkosh with the big blowouts, Whitewater. Beats River Falls 35-0 or maybe it's 34-0, but you know the way you would expect Whitewater to beat River Falls, and, and based on now what we've seen with Whitewater and Platteville having that be a one-point game, I think we're maybe looking at maybe a three-way. Um, you know, it's it's could turn into a three-way situation in the WIAC here between Oshkosh, uh, Platteville, and Whitewater, and we'll find out pretty soon because uh, Oshkosh and Platteville play this weekend, and then Oshkosh and Whitewater play the following week. Yeah, indeed, we could have a, a three-way tie at the top, and 
We'll get into each conference's. Each conference, for those of you who don't know, is in charge of its own automatic bid. The NCAA does not decide who your automatic bid is. Uh, if you have a tie at the top of the conference, it is the conference's responsibility to come up with a rule to break that tie. And since in football, you know, obviously you play just 10 games and we don't play home and homes, there's not a, a real easy to way to break three-way ties where everybody's split against the other. So some uh, conferences resort to what is uh, commonly called the Rose Bowl rule, even though the Big Ten doesn't use this for the Rose Bowl anymore because, well, you know, why would we have bowl tie-ins? That doesn't make any sense. Let's do something crazy in Division One FBS. Um, but basically, the team that has been out of the playoffs the longest would get uh, a, an automatic bid in some three-way ties. Sometimes there's a, a point tiebreaker with a, with a cap on margin of victory to keep people from, you know, blowing their opponents out in order to try to win a tiebreaker. And sometimes it's a uh, it's a coin flip and, and show me the three-sided coin if you would. So um, that's uh, something that's coming uh, far down the road. Uh, the, the MIAC race, um, you know, it may end up being a little bit easier to determine it, if at the very least because Bethel and St. Thomas play each other head-to-head -head this week. And that will give us a clear leader. But I, I think this is one of those conferences where – you can't assume that the team that's in first in the middle of October is going to win the rest of its games because, you know, St. Thomas, for example. Well, well, let's just take a look at the standings real quick. Bethel and St. Thomas, both 3-0 and in the MIAC, 5-0 and overall. Remember, every MIAC school won all of its non-conference games, so they all have nice records. St. Olaf, 3-1, 5-1. Augsburg, 3-1, 4-1. at Moorhead's 2-1, 4-1. So right now you have five teams in the, in the MIAC with uh, just one loss. Or, or or zero losses. So even though either Bethel or St. Thomas is going to pick one up, you know those those teams are going to have to go through maybe a, maybe kind of a gauntlet at, at the end of the season. You know, you look at the St. Thomas schedule. Yeah, they're they're five and zero, but they haven't beaten any of the teams that are going to be in the mix here. You know, they they at home against Bethel on Saturday, then they go to Hamlin, but then they have Augsburg, Concordia, Moorhead, and St. Olaf. And I don't think you can assume this year the way you probably could have assumed in previous years because the Tommies were so dominant. Uh, I don't think you can assume that if the Tommies beat Bethel that they're just going to wipe the floor with uh, with the last three teams on their schedule. I am skipping over Hamlin, but you know, apologies to all Pipers out there. Uh, you know, if you look at the result on Saturday for, for St. Thomas, 28-14 win against Gustavus, hey, they, they'll take a, a two-touchdown win over anybody, but I don't think that's the, the type of result that's, that's going to you know, put fear into the rest of the Mayak. No, uh, with uh, Matt O'Connell threw three interceptions and uh, St. Thomas fumbled the ball away three times as well. So uh, a little trouble hanging on to the football and they'll want to uh, maybe hang on to it a little bit better next week. Um, one of the other races I wanted to look at, we had uh, someone with um, an eyewitness view to what Widener looked like this week. So uh, let's send it to Dave McHugh, who was covering the Widener-Stevenson game for Stevenson's broadcast. Pat and Keith, the number 17 team in the country, the Widener Pride, had an easy time with Stevenson on Saturday at homecoming in Chester, Pennsylvania. The offense for Widener looks pretty good. Chris Hopp was 15 for 20 for 279, three touchdowns and two picks. Hopp certainly has this offense 
uh, working very well. They had 13 different guys, including the quarterbacks, run the ball. They had 11 different guys catch the ball. They would spread it out. You'd see four on one side for wide receivers, one on the other in an empty backfield set. They'd also go to a, a classic 22 double tight end set with an eye formation in the backfield and hop under center. They had all kinds of mixes and matches in between that. Both teams would throw in a bunch of different reverses uh, and get a little tricky with a lot of different plays. And, and Widener certainly looked very comfortable on offense. The, the interesting thing for Widener was their defense. It seemed like Stevenson started to figure some things out, especially in the second half. Kasparovic, the John Kasparovic, the starting uh, quarterback, 17 for 26 yards, 177 yards, 17 for 26, I should say, one touchdown. And K.K. Smith has now run for six straight games in the MAC, obviously one out of the MAC, for 100 yards plus. K.K. Smith, 28 yards for, or 28 carries for 110 yards. Uh, long of 21, did not have a touchdown running. But now this season, he's got a throwing touchdown, a passing touchdown, and a running touchdown. He's got the trifecta. Eight different guys caught the ball for Stevenson. But what Stevenson started doing, they're, they're a huddle offense, and they would come to the line and check quite often, especially when Gasparovic was going to go under center. And Widener never seemed to change out of it and seemed to give away a lot of what they were doing. Um, and so Stevenson would check out of it very often. If they would see that the safeties were coming up, playing the run against K.K. Smith, and they would pass the ball, and they started to have success with that. Uh, Stevenson, though, must have dropped, I would, I would venture to say, close to 10 passes. And then at the same time, if they would show that they were in a passing scenario, they tended to hand it off to K.K. Smith or even Marcus Holly, who got a little bit of spell in there as well and run it. But that's exactly how K.K. Smith got his touchdown. It was that fake run to him. Everyone bought it. Nobody was in the end zone from five yards out. Everybody was within five yards of the ball. He was able to throw it over the top to brag. So Widener offense certainly looking pretty good. The defense who came in pretty well ranked. Stevenson seemed to have some success against. Next week, Widener has a bye week and then they will go to Lycoming for essentially the MAC title game. Both those teams undefeated after this weekend and those teams, you know, one loss there is pretty much going to be eliminating any chances of winning it barring an upset. So really a big match for Widener coming up in two weeks. Stevenson also has the bye week. They will return home at 1-5 on the year looking to get their second victory, this time against a struggling Wilkes squad who did beat Misericordia over the weekend, but Stevenson Certainly thinking they, they got an opportunity here to get a win at home. Hope that helps you guys understand a little bit of what's going on in the MAC, especially a pretty good pride team at Widener. I'll send it back to you, Pat and Keith. Thanks, Dave. Uh, I think one thing to keep in mind, though, of course, Keith, is that uh, even though Widener and Lyco are both undefeated and they will face each other in two weeks, uh, Delaware Valley is obviously not out of this conference race either. They're uh, they're uh, they're they're sitting back there at one game back and and. Uh, Delaware Valley still has a head-to-head -head game against Widener, so they are still in the mix in this conference race as well. Yeah, there's a three-way tie scenario still in play. Widener goes to Lycoming on uh, October 20th, and then it'll be all the way till week 11, November 10th, before we figure out uh, what happens between DelVal and Widener. That's the Keystone Cup game that's at Widener this year. Uh, we, you know, every year it tends to be about five conferences that that come down to possible three-way tie scenarios. Uh, another handful of conferences decided on the final weekend and, and the Mac looks like it could be one of those conferences. The Mac also isn't too far from from another one of those conferences, uh, which is getting a little bit more clear uh, in, in the end, Jack. I, I just want to throw that in there while we're talking about uh, Eastern teams because uh, the, the Rowan end, is rolling. Rowan is rolling. That is true. And uh, that at one point, that was probably the most confusing conference race. And uh, now it, it's it's starting to look a little bit more clear. 
although you still have Cortland State and Kane undefeated uh, in the conference and then every other conference school with at least two losses, two NJAC losses. So uh, that's another one that we'll, we'll be watching um, as the season wraps up. How about the Skyak? Uh, you know, uh, Cal Lutheran defeats Redlands on Saturday night, 45-35. Over the last few seasons, this has been the game that's ended up determining the, the conference race. But, of course, um, because the Skyak only plays nine games, nobody plays in week one. Uh, you know, these teams have only played four games total and only played two games of their conference schedule so far. Yeah, and, and right now it's Cal Lutheran, Chapman, and, and Laverne technically tied at the top of the conference. You know, for several years it was Occidental Redlands was the game. Whoever won that would go to the playoffs, and whoever didn't, you know, tough luck, or, or at least they're trying to get in Pool B. Um, and, and then it became Oxy Redlands and Cal Lutheran, and now it's just been Redlands and Cal Lutheran. And, and that game on Saturday, uh, Saturday night, you know, East Coast time kicked off 10 o'clock, 7 o'clock out there. Um, so you could you could pay attention to all these great top 25 games during the day and then catch a little bit of that game at night if you're crazy and your wife doesn't make you you know do stuff all day Saturday or whatever the case may be you can uh, you can tune in um, it, it really ended up being it was a 45 35 final but it wasn't that close at sometimes you know Cal Lutheran had a pretty comfortable two touchdown edge and every time Redlands you know was able to cut it to a, to about a two score game, Cal Lutheran would would put up another touchdown, and you know to to be honest, one thing that's you know neat about these this, the Skyac teams is they're in the same situation I think as Wabash and Wittenberg, where this, when the schedule comes out, you look at the one team and you say if you win that, you know we're probably in pretty good shape, and, and Cal Lutheran is probably in pretty good shape right now. Redlands is in not good shape, um, but but the Skyac has has stepped up its non conference scheduling, and so. Um, maybe that's a factor in, in why Cal Lutheran was so ready for this game. You know, having played Linfield and Pacific Lutheran already this season, you know, they, they had to go to Redlands for this game, but they were, you know, probably as sharp as they'd been all season in, in this victory. We take another meandering through uh, the top 25 and, and talk about Mount Union for a second. Mount Union had three guys play quarterback on Saturday, and none of them was Neil Seaman. If it sounds like Neil Seaman's career at Mount Union is done, what a what a strange way for it to end. You know, he's a guy who, uh, you know, helped Mountain Union get to two stag bowls. Didn't get to play in either one of them. Uh, essentially, he get, did get a, a snap basically here or there, um, but because he was injured, uh, and then, you know, he's completely supplanted not just by Kevin Burke, not just by Roman Namdar, but apparently also on Saturday by Torrey Scott. And and that's probably the the most vivid testament to the the Mount Union philosophy and what's the philosophy at, at a lot of these schools where you, you can bring in you know more than a hundred players sometimes close to two hundred or upwards of two hundred players is that your job is never your job it's a job and you got to keep earning it every week and if somebody else comes along and somebody else is in the program that that uh, has more talent than you and can master the playbook the you know equally. Then, uh, then, then your spot is up for grabs, and you know I, I, I don't know the ins and outs because I haven't been in alliance this season to to see any non-union games, but um, you know I don't know if they just if Neil Seaman just isn't playing that well, or those other guys are playing better. But I think you know either way, it, it's a testament to the fact that at Mount Union, you know those practices aren't just you're not just running out there and throwing the ball around. You know, those guys, you're, you're earning your job. You're either keeping your job or losing your job every practice. And, uh, you know, right now, you know, Mount Union, as interesting as the quarterback situation is, the story really is probably the defense. You know, Wilmington, 
negative 14 yards rushing on Saturday, zero points, which means Mount Union has given up a grand total of seven points now in its five games. And we've seen some really, really tremendous Mount Union defenses over the years, but this one points wise is uh, is right up there with them, although they have their their toughest part of the uh, OAC schedule yet to play. The uh, the only Mount Union touchdown was in week one at Franklin, uh, the non-conference game. So no no conference team has scored a point on Mount Union so far. Um, and that touchdown at Franklin was at the 13:50 mark of the fourth quarter. So uh, when the, when the game was already 31-0. Yeah, we're coming up on the hour market at this point. Uh, kind of take the rest of the things on the list and kind of whittle them down to bullet points. Uh, Utica scores 30 points in the fourth quarter to come back and beat Buffalo State. I'm going to skip the how the mighty have fallen thing and talk about Utica for a second, Keith. Well, I just think they, they offensively, uh, they, they have been tremendous for pretty much most of the season. And, and, you know, it tells you that, you know, Hobart was the only team that, that slowed them down for a portion of a game. And that maybe tells you how good that, that Hobart defense is because I believe Hobart had 10 sacks in that game. But, uh, you know, Utica's not really in the, in the empire eight race right now at, at the top of it, but they're a team that could be trouble. And then some other teams that had interesting wins, and we're going to talk even less about them. Uh, Bluffton beating uh, Rose Holman in triple overtime. Simpson with another uh, uh, big win for them in the IAC two weeks in a row. Saul Ross throws down 75 points on uh, Mississippi College. Northwestern breaks uh, St. Scholastica's uh, win streak in the UMAC. And Augsburg defeats St. John's to the point where you don't really talk about St. John's uh, struggles anymore. St. John's is... 0-4 for the first time since uh, the 1930s. 0-4 uh, in conference for the first time since then. Yeah, well, we, we went through the St. John's thing last week, Pat, where they're, they're now, and I guess they're now 8-8 eight and eight in their past 16 games, so they're basically a 500 program. And, uh, you know, you start to wonder how much longer Saint, the Johnnies fans, who maybe are some of the best fans in Division Three, how much longer uh, they're going to they're gonna stand for that. You know, they, they, they have the iconic coach, uh, the the win, most winningest college football coach of all time. They they can't run him out of there, but uh, certainly things aren't going well in that program. Uh, a couple other you know eye catching wins, I guess, in the sense that we had mentioned them in, in triple take. Knox uh, beat Beloit. Those those these were mentioned under the category team in in most need of a morale win. And uh, Saint Vincent needed a morale win. Uh, it did not get one. Teal won for the second time this season. I thought that one was pretty interesting. And you mentioned Sol Ross, Pat, a week after giving up 76 points to Mary Harden-Baylor, turn around and, and put 75 points on the board. Uh, that's, a, that's a team that's going to be dangerous in the, uh, in the ASC, even though uh, it's probably Mary Harden-Baylor and Louisiana College for the top spot. The battle of unbeatens that got the least amount of ink in this show, I believe. I guess, actually except for Middlebury Amherst, which is probably getting even less. Uh, Whitworth against Willamette. Uh, moving ahead to next week, uh, Whitworth now with the one loss. They go to uh, third-ranked Linfield. Linfield uh, coming off a bye this past week. It's going to be number nine Bethel at uh, number four St. Thomas. Uh, we have uh, St. John Fisher playing Alfred, as uh, mentioned earlier. Um, I'm just going to say for the record right now, I am not going to be picking North Central to be upset in triple take, and it's not just because they're playing North Park, although it's mostly because they're playing North Park. Uh, Platteville is at Oshkosh. We mentioned that already. Uh, Birmingham Southern hosts Trinity, Texas. Uh, Johns Hopkins goes to Dickinson. Elmhurst hosts Wheaton. Uh, the two number 25s play each other, Otterberg and, Otterberg and Heidelbein. That's a, not the first time I've done that in my life. Otterbein and Heidelberg uh, face off. 
against each other uh, this upcoming week uh, in a, uh, <laughs> to call it a Pool C elimination game. Also, I would have to assume the loser is out of the top 25, barring some other uh, major upheaval. Uh, Randolph-Macon is at Washington and Lee as the uh, throw in the clarity word for those of you playing the uh, podcast drinking game. Uh, if you're doing that on Monday morning, I hope it's coffee. Uh, and uh, Randolph-Macon, uh, WNL should clear up the uh, ODAC, at least give us a, a bit of a start there. Uh, W&J returns home. They face Westminster of Pennsylvania. And uh, those are uh, just uh, some of the games coming up this week. Pat, when, when you call it Heidelbein and Otterberg, that's when you know it's time to wrap the show up. Thanks for listening this week. And uh, we'll am it. We'll get to you. We, we mention you next week. We promise you know, you're undefeated and uh, you're playing Lewis and Clark next week. Um, sorry. That's probably that's how crazy week it was. You, you two teams that are uh, that are unbeaten. We didn't even uh, we didn't hardly mention them. So don't forget, of course, uh, everything else coming up on uh, D3Football.com this week. First of all, uh, to mention for those of you who don't already know, uh, the Around the Nation podcast is back in the iTunes uh, podcast store, so you can now uh, you know resubscribe to us again and uh, get it downloaded to your phone or to your iPod. You know. It was all about iPods though when we started the when we started this, and now I, I assume that most people will probably get these things uh, automatically pushed to their phone. And I'm an Android guy, so I apologize for uh, not having all that lingo down. I have to ask my 14 uh, year old daughter. Um, Off the Palm Trio. Oh no, the Palm Trio died. Thankfully, a, a grateful death. The Palm Trio died uh, right after the Stag Bowl, so I now have a uh, I have an HTC Evo uh, thing. It does nice things, I'm sure. Um, the rest of the week, of course, we have uh, D3 reports, and we have one from Keith uh, from the uh, from the Guru Bowl. I've only watched the first five seconds of it, so I don't even know if you refer to it as the Guru Bowl. But I went to Catholic, and Keith went to Randolph-Macon, and they played each other on Friday night, and it was a, a night game at Dayfield. So uh, watch some more about that. Uh, also, highlight packages will uh, be on the site on Monday afternoon. Uh, Tuesday morning, we'll... Uh, Name the D3Football.com Play of the Week. So if you haven't nominated, please do so by uh, close of business on Monday. And for those of you in Pacific time, uh, that's, you know, about 2 p.m. your time. Uh, around the region and around the nation, triple take on Friday, and then we'll get you uh, week seven as the Division Three football season is just flying by. So he's Keith McMillan. I'm Pat Coleman, and that's the Around the Nation podcast. <laughs>